This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, and welcome to the Cost of Employment edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion. I'm joined, as always, by Slate's Moneybox columnist, Jordan Weissman. Hello, Felix. Hello, Jordan. And Kathy O'Neill is in Atlanta. And so standing in for Kathy, we have the insanely amazing and awesome Ellie Mistel, the editor of Above the Law. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Um, Above the Law is, quick plug... A legal blog that focuses on the fun part of law. It's hilarious. If you if you never thought that law could be funny, just check it out. It's fantastic. And we will be talking about um, the profession of the law and why Ellie's not in it. <laughs> why I'm recovering. <laughs> a, li- a little bit Still. later. And we'll also be talking about student loans because we love the t- topic of student loans. Here's today's question. Is it ever a good idea to just simply default on your student loans? We will ask Ellie. He has first-person experience of this. But first, we're going to talk about a different kind of quitting. Um, We're going to talk about CEOs losing their job and one CEO in particular. It was this week a big news week. It was a big news week for CEOs losing their jobs. We had the co-CEOs of uh, Deutsche Bank. Anshu Jane and Jürgen Fitchin, they were fired by the board. Jane is out already. Fitchin will be out soon. And they're going to be replaced by this guy, John Cryer, who has the advantage, unlike Jane, that he speaks German. This is useful, apparently, it turns out, when you um, work at Deutsche Bank. Work at Deutsche Bank. Um, you have the CEO of Showtime, uh, Matthew Blank. He's been there for a very long time. He said that he's retiring. His deputy, David Nevins, is taking over. What we see here is, like, when you quit, you have someone to replace you. When the board fires you, there's a succession plan in place. What we had, we had Rupert Murdoch. We lo- we all love Rupert Murdoch. He has a couple of CEO jobs, but the bigger one, the CEO of 21st Century Fox, he said he was going to resign from that and hand over to his son, James Murdoch. It's, you know, we all know that Rupert's still going to actually in- be in charge, but... The point being that there's a succession plan and, of course, the most chaotic company in the world where nothing can ever go right and they have no idea how to manage their way out of a paper bag. At Twitter, the board went and fired Dick Costolo and had no idea what to do. And they said, oh, we fired you and um, where uh, we uh, mm, uh, don't know what to do. So let's put Jack Dorsey in as an interim CEO. Um 
you know, despite the fact that he actually has a day job as CEO of this other company called Square. A not insignificant company, mind you. How many how many CEOs are like or how many CEOs are there out there who are running two disparate large companies right so now? So the only thing I could think of was Steve Jobs at Apple and Pixar. Yeah. I guess that that's but like currently besides Steve Jobs who's sort of Superman doesn't Twitter really run itself though <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's all algorithmic include which I, that might explain why it's been having so many troubles uh, but Jack Dorsey just for anyone who doesn't for some reason listener doesn't remember the name he is a co-founder of uh, Twitter who sort of got and a former CEO and a former CEO who was basically fired himself and replaced by Dick Costolo because Dick Costolo was considered to be more of a grown-up who could manage but it turns out that most of Dick Costolo's senior management ranks have seen massive turnover. Everyone's coming in and out. And, of course, lethally for the CEO of any public company. Dick Costolo was the guy who took Twitter public and then proceeded to see its share price go in the wrong direction, that it's down rather than up. And when you're the CEO of a company whose share price is going down, your job is never that safe. So think about this that... um the thing, the thing about what's going on at Twitter, I think, is kind of interesting from a broader perspective, besides just the chaos, is it, it, it really forces the question of, uh, of or the issue of their sort of identity crisis, right? Twitter has not figured out how to meet Wall Street's expectations yet. They're having slower revenue growth, slower user growth than they thought. And they don't really know how to maintain the service as it's as a lot of people have come to know and love it while expanding its reach. And the is, expectations... Is that really, oh, yeah, sorry. Is, is that really Twitter's fault, though? I mean, one of the things that I, I think is always funny about Twitter is that, to me, it's the investors that were the dumbasses for investing in it in the first place, right? Like, if if the problem that Costello has is that you can't figure out how to make money off Twitter at, at its fundamental level. Nobody can figure out how to make money off of Twitter at a fundamental level. Anybody who looks at Twitter would look at it and say, hmm, I don't really know how to make money off of that. Now, when you bring in somebody who says, I can magically make money off of that and it doesn't work, who like who's the dumbass? The guy who promised that they could make money off of it when without an idea or the people who believe that. Guy? Okay, so the f- the first thing is that Twitter was actually quite careful not to say that they were going to make money. It is interesting. <laughs> it is interesting. But, but that, they got the valuation as if they, they were going to make well, money. Well, no, that's actually no. I mean, I'm going to okay. come to that okay. in a minute, but the um when they went public, they were quite careful to say that they they didn't plan to have massive profits anytime soon. And in fact, they have completely delivered on that lack of a profit, <laughs> on, that, on that promise, and they have not made any money, and they're still losing well over $100 million per quarter. Yeah. We're talking half a million dollars, half a billion dollars per year in losses, which you can't sustain, except for interestingly, um, they're not cash losses. They're, they're, they're mostly related to stock-based compensation. They pay all of their staff in stock, um, so under generally accepted accounting principles, that shows up as a you know nine-figure loss. Uh, but of course, the staff isn't very happy if you're being paid in stock and the stock is going down. Yes. So that makes for demoralized staff, and that's not good. Um, but yeah, so your question, Ellie, is you know shouldn't we just be blaming the investors for putting such a high valuation on the on this thing? Your point, Jordan, was that. Twitter failed to meet Wall Street's expectations. And the answer to both of these questions is, well, Twitter kind of worked this out. And they hired Anthony Noto from Goldman Sachs to be their chief financial officer, um, precisely because it is the job of any um, public company. It is one of the key jobs of any public company is this thing called expectations management. You don't allow your investors to start running away with crazy expectations because that is a recipe for doom when those expectations aren't met. And so when Noto came in, everyone was like, okay, now we're going to have some common sense here and he's going to be able to manage the expectations better. He didn't. You know, when the last quarterly earnings came out, everyone was disappointed because, again, when Twitter went public, they said the thing that they really were were promising. They weren't promising profits, but they were promising user growth. Yeah. And then they suddenly changed their mind because the user growth failed to appear. So now they've tried to come up with a whole bunch of other metrics which they can deliver on. But it's a mess. So you're saying that this Noto guy is the guy who should have been fired? Well, Noto hasn't been there that long. <laughs> so, that's... 
I mean, because yeah, I think Jordan's point is that like there, there's gonna there needs to be heads on the table, right? Like, <laughs> well, there's been a lot of people who've been fired, yeah. in, up to and including the CEO. It's not clear that Twitter's problems are problems which can be solved by firing people. And Chris Sacker, one of Twitter's big investors, just wrote an eight and a half thousand word blog post going on and on and on about all the different things which Twitter can and should be doing. But not one of those was let's just fire everyone because that doesn't really help. Well, so let, let's talk about what Twitter should be doing. I mean, at this, you know, it seems like what everyone is saying is it needs to kind of transform what it is as a service. It, it, it can't be old Twitter anymore and expect to make money. I just have, I, I have trouble. Well, I mean, I, I don't know if that's true. I mean, if yeah. you just keep Twitter exactly as it is yeah. and fire everyone, you know, it's made, it's, it's got enormous revenues. It just has lots of expenses to go across, you know, with them. If it doesn't try and grow, if it doesn't try and do anything, if it just sort of like says, well, maybe Periscope is going to make us money. Yeah. Um, then presumably it could cut its R&D costs, which are huge, enormously, and then it would make money. So they could just go on autopilot and stop trying to be a growth stock in any way or stop being a growth company. The reason why people don't like Twitter, though, and the reason why that, that, that doesn't work is that you have to grow in this world. Like, in a world where they've already been overtaken by Instagram, they're probably going to get overtaken by Snapchat pretty soon, and there's any number of other sort of social networks which are, you know, going to be formed and might well overtake them. This is a world, weirdly, where 300 million active monthly users is not that many. Yeah, it's funny. You have to grow, otherwise you just get left behind. Yeah, it's funny because it gets accused of being kind of a collection of small clicks online. I mean, that's that's the main reason a lot of, or one of the main reasons people cite for why it's difficult to just join Twitter and start using it. It's not as easy as Facebook where you just find your friends, who people you know, and then look at their baby pictures. Twitter, you kind of have to find your tribe and then follow those people and get into conversations with them. Um, but yeah, it's a 300 million strong like collection of tribes, which I mean, after a point, don't you, again, like how do you keep growing those Try, I get, how do you keep growing a collection of small villages like that, though? After a point, isn't it also doesn't it just become an exit play then? Like af, after, like at what point is it just? Do you just pare the company down so you can sell it off right. to somebody who can? And so, and this yeah. is one of the conspiracy theories about this whole concept of the interim CEO is that in fact they're not going to hire a permanent CEO, and in fact they're just going to sell the company. Um, the rumored acquirer for for a long time now has been Google. Uh, personally, I think it would make probably more sense to be bought by Apple for various reasons. But the acquirer, which really makes sense to me, to Jordan's point, is Facebook. Because the reason why people don't like or get Twitter is because when you sign up for Twitter, you wind up following Kanye West and a bunch of celebrities and Rihanna and Azalea Banks. I don't know. And the <laughs> I have yeah. no idea. Was, all I these mean, people I'm have sure millions of followers. I just thought that those were the first thing that came to me. <laughs> yeah. like, like Rihanna, Azalea Banks, yeah, the next. Anyway, continue. And, <laughs> and they, you know, no one, that is not interesting, frankly. Yeah. Following a bunch of celebrities and a bunch of brands is not interesting. When Twitter gets interesting is you start following the people you know and you start having conversations with them. And, the you know, all Facebook would need to do if it bought Twitter is just say, okay, now you can follow all of your friends on Facebook. And that would solve a huge number of problems at one stroke. First of all, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna ride or die with Riri's Twitter account. That that that's that thing's interesting. No. <laughs> <laughs> Secondly, I, I from a legal perspective, um uh, I, I want I, the the Facebook angle. I hadn't thought of. I'm worried about the Google angle, and I know that we don't have like antitrust laws when it comes to what company can control how how much can one company control of my life, right? But at the point where Google and and Twitter merge, which which is which is the big rumor, you've got one organization, Google, that knows that then gets to know what I think before I think it, right? Yeah. <laughs> which which from a privacy perspective, from from a serious legal perspective, from a privacy perspective, that does worry me. From a kind of conspiracy theorist legal perspective, it, it I, it's terrifying. So actually, no, I was thinking very similarly just now, what would happen, I mean, you know, what would an antitrust lawyer think if they looked at Facebook acquiring Twitter? And the problem is defining the market, right? What is What market would they be taking over? Is it the social media market, in which case that's that's very diffuse and hard to pin down exactly what it is. But 
um, if maybe it's the mobile ad market, in which case they're probably still uh, they might still, still be much a, smaller than Google. Yes, or well, mobile ad or maybe display ad. Then, in which case they're not. But it, it is a question of what are they? What 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 are they launching their takeover right. of at that? Point? And then and the, the yeah. people who answer that question are going to be Instagram's lawyers, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. If you can buy Instagram and if you can buy yeah. WhatsApp, then you can buy Twitter. Um, but as for Google, which I think also would have no antitrust problems. Here's, here's an interesting like little tweak to the conspiracy theory. Dick Costolo has already sold a company to Google. He was the CEO and founder of FeedBurner. Oh, I and remember that. As we know, Google bought FeedBurner, created Google Reader. It was wonderful. And then Google killed Google Reader, and we all cried. And it was the worst day in the history of the internet. And maybe Dick Costolo, for that reason, just would never sell to Google, and maybe this is going to make it easier for Twitter to sell to Google. That's a good, that's a good conspiracy theory. Okay, enough on Twitter. We are going to move on. Ellie, you posted last week a really fascinating essay about the economics of quitting big law. You, you used to be one of those lawyers toiling away at, what was it, Debevoise and Plimpton? It was Debevoise and Plimpton, which I always say is a very nice firm if you like that kind of thing. <laughs> um, but I put in my two and a half years in And big you law. did not like that kind of that thing. Was, it was not for me. <laughs> and then you decided to quit. And I, that had enormous consequences. Had enormous, it turns out it had enormous economic consequences. So last week was my 10-year anniversary of quitting. You know, when I, when I got out of law school, uh, my, my starting salary at Debevoise, this is back in 2003, was $145,000 a year, which is more than, not only much, obviously the most that I had made, it was the most money that anybody in my family had ever made up to that point in a single year. Um, I felt like at some level I owed it to my family to try to like it, right? <laughs> Um, but I didn't, and I'm selfish like that. So after two and a half years, I decided to to leave the highest paying job that legitimately I'll probably ever have. Um, to but those illegitimate ones are so much more fun. <laughs> um, to start on the path that is that has led me to um, writing essays online about how much money I used to make. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I calculated it out, and it turns out pre tax. Um, if you just take all the salary and bonuses that I would have made over the past 10 years, and you have to do some some creative accounting to kind of come up with a figure, um, minus the money that I've made, writing online, I used to teach for Kaplan, you know, whatever I have to do in the alley to make ends meet, um, I left approximately $2,273,500 on the table over the past 10 years. $2.2 million? Yep. Which is a lot. That's a, <laughs> it's a lot of money. Um so how does that make you feel? You know, at first it made me sick to my stomach, and it also made my wife very, very sad. Um, but because she was like, I could do with that money. Yeah, because <laughs> you know somebody still has to pay our bills, and right now that's our that's my wife who who didn't you know she also is a lawyer and she didn't leave the job and now she works um, she works at an investment bank um, being a lawyer, so she's had to kind of stay in it while <laughs> while I've gotten out. So, you know, it, it's, uh, she's a nice woman. Um, how did it make me feel ultimately? It made me feel ultimately like it was worth, um, every penny, right? Right. Like you can't, you, they say you can't, I said in my, my article, you can't put a price on happiness. Apparently I can $2.2 .2 million is how much my happiness is worth to me. Um, but I think it kind of, the reason why I did it is to, you know, there's so many, online articles or so many uh, uh, career advisors who talk about work-life balance. And I want to kind of look at, well, what, what does that actually cost? My lifestyle is great now compared to what it was, but there is a real economic um, cost that I've paid for it. Yeah. I also, I really liked your piece um, and because of the way it nodded to this bigger debate we've seen in, in the last years about you know the economic value of a law degree and how how is it worth it to go to law school and such and you and I have we've argued on the internet uh before about this subject and I don't want to jump too deep into the weeds about it but basically over the last couple of years um there's been this one professor in particular named Mike Simkovic um and a, a colleague of his name Frank McIntyre who've done some I think very good analysis on the re expected return on a law degree. And they say, you know, if you go you at the 25th percentile, you can expect to make X hundred thousand dollars more than if you just went to college or at the 50th percentile, you can expect to make, you know, X hundred thousand dollars more. But in, in your piece, you point out something that I think should be very obvious here, which is that making a career in the law is 
and extremely emotionally draining and difficult and uh, sometimes unpredictable, especially okay, now. Okay, so wait, explain experience. this to me because I would be astonished if 75% of people with law degrees made a career in the law. You're saying well, that at the 25th percentile... Well, you so, can still expect to make more than if you'd just gone to college. Yes, but then as you, then as you go up the percentiles, when you get to people who really are working in a law firm Right, but, but you're saying that even yeah. at the 25th percentile, you still make more. It's still worth it. Yes, and that is, that's part he's of his analysis. That. Yeah, he's, he's saying, saying that. That's because, part of his analysis. what we know about law degrees or yeah. what we know about earnings after you graduate from law school mm-hmm. is that those earnings are what's known as bimodal. Yeah. That there's a small relatively small number and and ellie is in this in this sense quite exceptional because only like what 10 percent of law graduates actually graduate into one of those hundred forty five thousand dollar a year big law jobs exactly. currently it's it, 160 that's the that's the jackpot but most law graduates don't go there and then if you don't get one of those jobs then the amount of money you make is much lower and i i think that what Ellie's done is he's managed to build a career for himself as someone with a law degree, which and he uses that law degree every day in his work. It's not like he's you know not getting value from that law degree. No, I'm not saying you don't get value from it. And in fact, I, I tend to, like I said, I I think it's good analysis. The problem is if you look at the number and say, oh, I'll make X amount more if I you know I'm I'm bound to make a million dollars more in my lifetime or whatnot. It's less certain than that. And there are all sorts of other factors. And a lot of it is just what kind of work can you really um, – what kind of work are, is right for you? As can you a, stomach? There, yeah, can you stomach? There's one of my problems – I have a lot of problems with, with this guy's analysis. And one of them is that it takes, doesn't take into account at all kind of a, a, what seems like an intangible question but really isn't. Are you going to like it? Because if you're not going to like it, if you're not going to love it, if you don't want to be a lawyer, then your chances of actually hanging in through – through the wars kind of long enough to get that return, to get that money, are vanishingly small. Even if you end up on the top peak of the bimodal distribution, your your chances of staying in that top peak for long enough to make the law degree pay off to you are, again, vanishingly small. Okay, but I have have a couple questions for you. I mean, is this not the wrong comparator? Um, Ellie, do you like your job right now? Yeah. Ellie, is the reason that you have this job right now entirely a function of the fact that you have a law degree no no of course not. <laughs> of course not and this is one of the things that i that i write a lot about online right when you look at the law you also have to look at the opportunity cost right so like all that time that you're spending like going to law school and being a lawyer and whatever that's time that you're not spending building other skills so if i hadn't gone to law school at all no maybe i wouldn't be an editor at above the law writing about law but i might be an editor at slate or fusion or somewhere else writing about white women who try to be black or <laughs> or whatever whatever have you like i would have had three four five six years of my life back to build other skills it's not like if you don't go to law school that means you're going to sit in on beach on club med and serve drinks right if you don't go to law school especially for some of these people that we're talking about i went to harvard law school you know a lot of the people that that we're talking about are going to some of the the best institutions in the world if you don't do that you're going to do something else with yeah, your so time you, and with your as, life as the, so and this is also i have to ask you this in in terms of your calculation, um, you know, if you hadn't gone to law school, then, you know, in fact, it's kind of worse than you're putting it, because if you hadn't gone to law school, then, number one, you would have saved all of the costs of Harvard Law School. But number two, you would have actually made probably a couple hundred thousand dollars at least over those years that you were in law school, and you'd have got a nice little you know, jumpstart to your career that way. Doing something, right? Doing something. Like, so, so you would, you know, so you regret going to law school. Yeah, I, I you know, it, it's, so, it's so fashionable, I think, these days to be like, I have no regrets. And of course, man, I regret going. I, re- I regret the 13th shot of tequila I took two weeks ago. Like, you know, <laughs> like th- things are regretful. So we don't, <laughs> we don't always make the best decisions. We make the best decisions that we can at the time. Looking back on those decisions and saying, like, I have no regrets, that's just, that's just not being intelligent, right? Like, of course, if I had to do, and I had the opportunity to do things differently, I'd do things differently. Now, the other aspect of this, and I, and I bring this up as well, is that you, you can't just remove one domino and then know how the rest would fall. I like where I am in my life now, and I 
appreciate that at some level, every decision, good or bad, every experience, good or bad that I've made has in some way led me to being in this position. And so kind of I'll take the whole over the sum of its parts. But, yeah, if I could change some parts, (laughs) you know, there are lots of things I would have done differently. So I want to take the conversation a slightly different direction. Um, You're out. You got out. You escaped. You you ran away. I. I, I, I can somewhat sympathize. I, for, I, I w- never went to law school. And the reason I didn't was because I actually spent a lot of time working on the business side of a law firm, um, thinking maybe I could go into corporate law and make lots of money and be happy. And uh, after a year and a half, I was uh, quite convinced that that would be impossible. <laughs> uh, so I went back. Thankfully, I saved myself some student loans that way. So I want to take this conversation in a slightly different uh, direction. Um, you know, you escaped. You've gotten out. Uh, but freedom, freedom, <laughs> freedom for my people. Anyway, so the um, what I'm wondering, you know, you write, pro- you know, above the law is sort of the 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 id of the legal industry and the most fun site on the legal industry, and I think probably the most incisive site on the legal industry. How how is the industry right now? If someone is considering maybe making a career as a lawyer, is that a crazy thing to do in your perspective at this moment? Like how from big law on down? Right. Okay. So first, there there are two basic things that I that I like to talk about here. One, it's a lottery ticket, right? It's and it's it's not necessarily a crazy Powerball ticket. It's a scratch off, you know. So you you got a chance of, of getting a return on it, but it's still fundamentally a lottery ticket. You are when you think about making career in law, you're kind of, you're playing the odds that you will luck out both in terms of enjoying and being good at the profession and B, in terms of being able to find a, uh, a sustainable career uh, at a price point where you can pay back your loans. So it is, it is a bit of a crapshoot. Um, two, and I think that this is, the, when I look at the profession as it is now, kind of the post-recession, the post-2009 legal profession, obviously the people who are already in it, who, who have stuck it out there, they're in kind of the catbird seat right now because there are fewer of them. And, you know, if you were a third-year associate in 2009, now you're mid-level and there are five of you. So you're, 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 in, a good, you're in a good way. Um, if you're just thinking about getting in now, it's really a flight to quality. So if you go to the top, you know, U.S. News likes to rank them about uh, they, they, the top 14 schools in U.S. News have always been the top 14 since U.S. News started ranking law schools. So we call it the top 14. Um, if you go to one of those top 14 schools, above the law has a ranking, we would say the top 15 schools, um, you're going to be okay, right? The, the Harvard grads, the NYU grads, the Columbia grads, the Chicago grads, they're going to be fine. Once you get out of that top tier, however you define it, it it's it, it's it's a very challenging market you're it's especially if you're thinking about as Felix was talking about on the bimodal with the bimodal curve to 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 punch that top peak of the curve from a non top 14 school um it's it's extremely challenging cuz they're just not hiring they're where, where, whereas law firms used to go to their schools that were outside of the top but like they liked for whatever reason and pick off that like top Ten percent, top five percent of the class, they're just not doing it anymore. They're just staying with the traditional powerhouses. So if you're kind of trying to come off the pace, if you're trying to come off the pace right now, you're racing against American Pharaoh. Yeah, that's all right. I, so that's that's a good place to segue, I think. Actually, Jordan, um, into the next question, which is. What happens when you do go to law school or any other school and you find yourself burdened with huge amounts of debt and, um, you know, you feel like you don't want to sit in some miserable law job even if you can get it? Yes. So uh, last weekend, actually, a uh, culture critic named Lee Siegel wrote a slightly controversial op-ed for The New York Times in which he recounted his experience going to school and borrowing tons and tons of money to do it, um, and then realizing that this debt would hamper his ability to live the life of a writer and a man of letters and whatnot. And so rather than accept that and go get a job or try to get a job in finance or law, um, he decided to default. He just upped and said, I'm going to default on my loans, not pay them back, and figure out how to live my life uh, without much of a credit score. And he has apparently successfully done this. It should be said, he didn't just accumulate this debt going to college. He he started off at a, a small private school in the Midwest, apparently, briefly went to state school, but then settled down at Columbia University, um, where he apparently had full ride, he had a full ride, but was still borrowing, presumably for living costs. And he got not only an undergrad degree, but also um, a pair of graduate degrees, um, which 
for obvious reasons, a lot of people reacted very poorly to this man's personal story because he's a relatively well-to-do uh, writer with a nice house in New Jersey who just defaulted on his loans and left the government to pick up the tab. Setting aside his personal story that enraged a lot of people, uh, myself included, I, I, I think I called him an unrepentant leech in my <laughs> in my response, he also said – and this was the bigger problem with the piece of my opinion. It was like, you too should consider defaulting on your loans because we need to sort of have an uprising in this country where colleges stop taking students for all their worth. And the only thing that's going to change it is if the government suddenly has this problem that can't control because everyone's defaulting. And the, my main objection, I think a very obvious objection, is that today, if you default on your loans, the government can garnish up to 15% of your wages. If you just sign up for the income-based repayment options they give you, they will make you pay only 10% of your wages every okay, month. Okay, you, you see, but this is – I find this argument that you're making a little bit confused because on the one hand, you are incredibly, you know, sort of – Morally outraged. Morally outraged, yeah. exactly. You're saying, this is wrong. If you've borrowed money to go to school, you should repay it. And it's – you're an unrepentant leech if you don't. And then on the other hand, you're like on the back of an envelope with pencil and paper saying, well, financially speaking, you might – you'd probably be better off if you sign up for IBR rather than if well, you get this garnished no, no, and that it, and the other. It's not confused. It's there are two different issues here. Okay. So, one, let's, so let's just take these one, issues. you're one a leech. Number two, regardless okay, of the moral so – yeah. So wait. Stop. Yeah. Let's take these issues one at a time. Yeah. Instead of trying to conflate them as you were doing, let's, let's do one first. And let's first start with this idea that there's a moral aspect to debt repayment. You are simply wrong about that. There isn't. It is a financial decision whether or not you make your – whether or not you repay your debts. If you borrow money, you sign a financial contract. If you re don't repay those loans, there are financial consequences. And if, a, if you can live with those consequences and you think that it's – Better to do that than to I, I totally your disagree loans. in this case. That. I totally disagree in this case because student loans are not like other debt. They they are subsidized loans from the government. And if you are essentially making a deal with fellow taxpayers, we are making a deal together that this system is going to work together. Otherwise, work otherwise, if everyone does start defaulting. It falls apart and eventually well, we lose fault, it. Well, whose fault is that, right? I mean, student loans are not like other debt because the government says so. Student loans are also one of the hardest categories of loans to discharge. You can't discharge yeah, student I, loans through bankruptcy absent a showing of, 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 of undue hardship. So honestly, literally, if I get myself into debt because I buy rims for my car – I can get out of that debt a lot easier than I can get out of debt if I if I've gotten into debt to try to better myself educationally. That's that's the immor that's the immorality. It's, that's the immorality. And, and I'm with Ellie on this. The other th yeah, the, th the the thing which we have to um, be careful about here is to not just automatically backslide into these silly slippery slope arguments. The idea that well, if everybody did it, like you can make any argument. Well, about wait, wait, wait. If let me. Uh, question: Do you think that paying your taxes is any kind of a moral obligation? A moral? Yeah, no, I'm asking, is there any moral obligation to pay your taxes? Yeah, because know. we have a social contract. I think so. I think that's kind of demonstrably different, though, right? Like, the, the ta taxes are, 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 are the price that we pay to live here. Yeah. And so I don't, I, I, don't, I, I don't like to make financial issues into moral issues, but if you were going to make one a moral issue, taxes is probably as close as I would come because it's our kind of shared American compact to pay these. Student debt, debt of any kind, but especially student debt, that's a, that's a usury system that you've entered into from a position of absolutely no power and very little knowledge. You're borrowing money directly from your fellow taxpayers, and they are giving – these loans in the end are – you're not or, borrowing or money directly from your fellow taxpayers, Jordan. That's just factually incorrect. You are, You're borrowing money from student lenders. The student lenders that's, then no, have that some is, kind no, of that, that's, some that's kind factually of government, No, no, what are you talking about? No, that, 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 that program doesn't exist anymore, Felix. That program hasn't existed since 2010. Okay? The FFL – sorry, I'm going to rant for a second here. The, fa the, the program, there has not been student-guaranteed bank lending since basically the Obama administration got rid of it five years ago. You have direct lending from the Department of Education. Education. Sorry. Yes, the, that that is true. Obama Obama there, Obama killed the access group and cut out the middleman, and now you and now and now and now the loans come directly from the government. But again, who's borrowing? Here's here's another aspect to your moral issue, right? Who who's getting them? Like I take out the loan. Do I see any of that money? No, it goes directly to my school, 
right? So the government pays the school and then requires me to pay back the government. The taxpayers pay. If you want to have a moral outrage about somebody, how about the school? Why isn't the school on the hook when I, think I don't the school should be. pay when I don't yeah, pay no, that's my debts, as issue. opposed to me? I do. I think there is a part of that. There should be. I, I am a, there's an idea called skin in the game that's actually getting popular now that school should pay some when someone defaults. I think that's a good idea. I think separately, though, if there's a difference between defaulting because you simply cannot pay, like you have, you have, you know, you have financially fallen apart. Your, your financial life is a wreck. You default because you don't know how to get out of the situation and saying, I want to be a writer. I'm going to just set aside this obligation. And as far as the old lending program go went, that was a guarantee to banks. It was still in the end, the federal government on the hook. The banks made the loans. They made all the profits. And if someone defaulted, the bank paid the I mean, the bank paid by the federal government and left the federal government to then go collect. OK, so, um, Ellie, obviously, Jordan is calling you a moral reprobate. He is. Yes. How, because because <laughs> you, my face. <laughs> because this is not you, the meanest thing we've ever said to each other. This is because like, you did default on your student I did, loans. I, the whole story that we talked about in the last segment, it's not possible if I don't default on my loans. It's just, it's just I, I can't make it work. And so what Jordan just said is that you know you had the ability to pay back your loans and therefore you did something morally wrong by not staying in your big law job yes that's what he's saying that's what he's saying okay i i, I disagree and now jordan are you are you really saying that are you really saying that ellie has no right to quit his job because he went to law school i think he i think it was morally wrong is it the you know, do I think he's a bad guy in the sch- <laughs> in like in the scheme of Ellie? Am I like Ellie? Uh, Ellie Mistel is just like that asshole. No, like no. I mean, like, but is he is he morally? I, I think you. I do think it was morally wrong in that case. Yeah, I think I will say it was. Yeah, let me let me put one. When you were defaulting, it was the payment options and management options were probably not as. I don't, in terms of IBR and whatnot, I, what year did you default? Well, I mean, IBR wouldn't even – I mean, I wasn't going – I was defaulting. I wasn't going to make any IBR money. being yeah. income-based right, like repayment. Would, yeah. Right. Sorry. IBR being income-based repayment. No, I wasn't defaulting so that I could go have another job and work in the public service. No, I was defaulting so I could not have a job for a bit while yeah. I tried to build skills towards a new job, right? Um, and I think I don't I – don't, I, I, I'm reluctant to bring this up just because I, I don't want to shy away from the moral approbation because it's really important for people who are thinking about this that you understand that you have to deal with the Jordan Weissmans of the world who will who will who will call you who will think less of you if you default. So it's I think an important part of the analysis. I don't want to shy away from that. I will say that I didn't actually default on my government loans. I defaulted on my private loans because of the wage garnishment that you mentioned. I didn't want the government coming and taking them. Uncle Sam is 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 a problem and but i didn't so I, I didn't not default on my government loans out of moral concerns i def, i didn't default on my government loans out of fear right like okay. that so they successfully scared you into yeah. doing the right which thing. is the same way i pay my taxes yeah. right to, yeah to, to bring that full circle so i'm not but i'm but if you are thinking about defaulting yeah you're gonna have to understand that you're gonna have some moral approbation from other people who and you know misplaced in fairness, moral approbation in, in fairness add. well in fairness to jordan's position i will say this like one of the only ways these companies can get people to pay back their loans is to make it seem like it's such a bad thing to default, right? Like uh, Al Pacino and the Devil's Advocate says, guilt is like a bag of bricks. All you got to do is put it down. <laughs> but these companies can't exist if people put them down. So, so it's not – the way is I don't blame Jordan for thinking the way he thinks. Like the system – Because the whole financial services I, industry has well, basically I'm a, I'm a, spent the past three decades trying to persuade Jordan that – D- that is a moral issue. Well, let, 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 me, let, me, let, me re- let me be clear here. I have much less of a problem with someone defaulting on their private loans. Their private loans, you're dealing with a bank. You're not deal- when, back when the, those private loans, I mean, they were semi-private, when they were guaranteed by the government, at, uh, that is where the issue of your responsibility as a citizen, I think, does come into play. Defaulting on Sally Mae now, that's, I think, a different story. You're just dealing with a bank, and they are making a bet, and that is they're not giving you a subsidized loan in any respect. There's no, there is no social compact. I think that that is, uh, I think you can make, draw a clear line there. Um, it just, when you do deal with the fact that now student lending 
is a government business. I, that's that's what changes it. Um, Can we get to the way that it's also really financially smart to <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Are, are okay. your loans as well? Okay. Because I think that's and this other... is about private loans again, right? Yeah, but I but I but I think as as, as the Siegel piece that we're talking about. Look, I, my my student, my, my I'm trying to remember my interest rate for my government loans um, right now is it's like two point one, two point four. It's ridiculous, right? I I I recently I, last year I bought a house. I have a, I have a mortgage, right? And that that money that I'm getting that I'm, uh, the usury rate I'm getting charged there is much higher, right? So if I came into fifty thousand dollars, I've got about fifty sixty thousand dollars left of government repayment to make. If I came into fifty thousand dollars, damn straight I'd pay it on my house mortgage. <laughs> Before I paid a cent to my student loan people, right, and that and that's that's not a question of default in in this hypothetical that I'm that I'm using, but I think it illustrates that in certain situations, if you've got one dollar and two people who want it, and a lot of times the student loans are the last person you should give that dollar to, not the first. Absolutely. Uh, so again, uh, finance, personal financial decisions are all a question of prioritization, and. I just don't believe that, you know, student loan debt repayments are as high up the list of priorities as the student lenders, including the government, would really um, have us believe. I mean, as a taxpayer. <laughs> well, do, you, do you think yeah. that they should make it easier for people to discharge their debts through bankruptcy? That's a I very do, simple... No, I, th- I think, yes. I do think that once you get to the point where someone is willing to go through bankruptcy, they are willing to go before a judge and say... I cannot pay. There is no hope of me paying. This is, you know, there is no real. I mean, no, that's not what. No, 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 no. That's that's undue hardship. That's what it is right now. Right now, if you want to, right now, just to be clear for the for listeners, right? Right now, if you wanted to start your debts, you can only do it through a showing of undue hardship, which means you have to go before the judge and be like, I am so sad and the crack and it hurts and blah blah blah. Right. If it was regular bankruptcy, no, no, like, you're right. You're right. You, yeah. you could just go and be like, you know what? I'm done. Chapter. Re- chapter regular me bankruptcy. Out. All you yeah. need to do is say my assets are lower than my liabilities. That's basically all you need to yeah, do. Yeah. Sorry, I, I went off a little too far there. I would like it if someone is willing to go through bankruptcy, the whole process of bankruptcy. I think that is a different situation, and I do undue hardship. It, it's. It's basically impossible. I mean, it's it's damn near impossible to get your loans forgiven under. It's all there are a few instances. Essentially, you have to be sick and dying, or not sick and dying, but just no real hope of working. Uh, and, and that is drug addiction way, helps. Drug addiction does help. <laughs> no, it's been found actually. There yeah. was a paper on this. Uh, drug addiction really does help. Um, but there 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 should be a lower standard. Most people are who are thinking about maybe defaulting aren't thinking about just going aren't thinking about filing for bankruptcy because there are also profound consequences when you do file for bankruptcy that last a while. I don't know if that's true. I don't, I, I think one of the things that we haven't talked about yet is that the people that we're talking about who are making these decisions, we're talking about 22-year-olds. We're talking about, we're talking about an 18-year-old who signed, as Felix is putting it, we're talking about a person who signed a contract when they were 18, had those debts come due when they were 22, 23. I don't know if your average 24-year-old on the street actually knows, oh, I have bankruptcy options and I have this option, I have that option. I think all they know is I can't pay back this money unless I'm willing to do something that I absolutely don't want to do. And so when you, if, if you're willing to to kind of agree that 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 student loans sh- should maybe be able to be discharged through a regular bankruptcy proceeding, then I think we're getting closer to the it's a financial transaction that doesn't have the morality attached to it, and then it's just about getting the information into the hands of the students at risk in trouble who need the information to figure out how to best manage their funds. Yeah, it seems to me that, as, as Ellie said, Jordan's painting this as well, the government, we taxpayers, society are lending you this money at, an, at a subsidized rate, and so you owe society on a moral level to pay it back. But really what's happening is that the government is subsidizing insane cost inflation at universities, which we've talked about on this program you know, many times in the past. And it shouldn't be on these you know, guileless 18-year-olds to to pay for all of that. Like, I think that if they can't pay or if you're trying to ask them to do something they really don't want to do in order to repay it, then, yeah, there are negative financial consequences to defaulting on your loans. But let's not make this a moral issue. Look, people do people do things that they don't want to do all the time because they have to, because they need the money. Can we go back and, to the like, – on the other – so we've, we've all stated our positions here. Can we, I just want to reemphasize, though, the dollars and cents – the second half of it, which is the way – repayment works now there assuming that you, you you can't figure out a way to stop the government from garnishing your paycheck there isn't much of a reason to do it 
because you can get a lower monthly payment. But, but I'm but pretty sure that in the case payment. of both Lee Siegel and Ellie Mistel, they did manage to figure out a way of stopping the government from garnishing their paycheck. There are actually quite a lot of ways of doing that. So I, I'm not sure that's a safe assumption. Well, you know, you didn't, he didn't, he didn't well, default I, on his loans. Well, I, I didn't, yeah. I didn't yeah. default and on Ellie, Siegel, And Ellie and, did it by not defaulting yeah. on the government loans, which yeah. were, correct me if I'm wrong, a minority of your loans. I think it was about half. Yeah, um, the, I mean, the rest, the rest was through through Lee, the largesse. No one's quite, cl- no one is clear on exactly how Lee Siegel avoided having his paycheck garnished. Uh, the running theory, because he hasn't elaborated, is because he's basically a freelance writer. Um, and the way they do it is they go to your employer, whoever's issuing your W two, and they start garnishing from there, like tax it, withholding. Take it at the source. He doesn't have an employer. He can maybe fall through the he, he can fall through the cracks there. Assuming that you're not looking to live the life of like you know of a freelance writer in New York, you are probably oh, I would. I, I, I've even talked to lawyers about this. 99% chance that you're going to be better off just going for this income-based repayment program. And that's, again, why I find the go default on your loans advice that you gave really, really uh Okay, so we'll, we will talk ill-advised. about, you know, the financial upside and downside of default and bankruptcy and that kind of stuff. And when, when, when it's a good time to file for bankruptcy on a different... Um, episode because we've gone way over time oh, on I'm this. sorry. Uh, but, you know, that, it's good. Our, our listeners will forgive us. Um, so, very quickly, I we are going to run through the numbers round. <laughs> Ellie, did you bring a number this week? I did, in fact. What's your number? 3.4 million. That's a number of dollars, I'm sure. It is a number of dollars. It is a number of dollars that Pornhub estimates it will cost to film their first space sex tape. And I think this is very important <laughs> because I, I'm, I'm big liberal, and so I generally believe that the government should be involved in funding research. But this is an aspect of research that only private industry can do. Look, if we're ever going to get out of the, off this planet, we're going to need to know how to do this. I'm sure there is some, like, dark DARPA NASA thing that's already tried this out. But, as far, but, but in a public way, we're going to need to know how to – continue our species in space and Pornhub is probably in the best position to do that research for us right now. Yeah, so I'm gonna, all for it. There's going to be like some like 11, no, not 11, there's going to be like some 14 year old boy on a, on a flight to Mars at some point in the future and he's just going to be queuing up this video about like <laughs> how it works. <laughs> and, but interestingly, Pornhub is not just paying $3.4 million to do this. They're, they're trying to crowdfund it, right? Because yes. Because they actually, this is the hilarious thing, Pornhub makes most of its money by pirating porn on the internet. And so they know that if they just fronted the money, they would never be able to make it back. So they're forcing people to pay the money up front to watch this porn up front because they know they're never going to get it once it gets pirated. I, I would donate if I wasn't terrified of Pornhub having my credit card. <laughs> That's uh, Jordan, are you going to donate to the Pornhub campaign? I will contemplate it. <laughs> or, or you know what you know you know what you could do jordan you could just spend a bunch of time on pornhub watching the pornhub ads and that's just a way of implicitly supporting this campaign oh great I feel, sorry I feel like, are you advocating <laughs> I, i'm this saying is, i'm saying it's, like moral good. Way it's a moral good to spend time on pornhub because we are advancing the cause of the species that's <laughs> i think i'm gonna go back to defaulting on <laughs> <laughs> all right was it my turn okay go ahead Okay, so my number, because uh, we like real estate porn, as Felix has put it on this show, I wanted to direct everyone's a, attention. A slightly less explicit form of pornography. Yes, a slightly. Yeah, this is <laughs> the porno edition um, of Slate Money. So uh, my number is 40,000, actually quote, more than 40,000, which is how many square feet are apparently going to be in the basement of the lar- of the most expensive house in London. Uh, it's this estate called Wittenhurst uh, that has a, a long and storied pedigree um, that has apparently fallen into, has been purchased by some Russian oligarchs. And there's this wonderful uh, story in The uh, New Yorker by Ed Caesar, just uh, where he tries to track down who actually owns this thing. Um, because it was a mystery for a very long time, and he comes up with a he comes up with a very convincing theory. At least as someone who's never read about this issue before, I, I don't want to spoil anything. But if you do like the machinations of Russian oligarchs and expensive real estate, things that we have discussed on this show, I think you'd really enjoy this article. Just to put that forty thousand number in context, though, the largest uh, residential property in Manhattan, according to this article, is only apparently fifty one thousand square feet. This um, place's basement and, is and, almost that big. And there's uh, and the largest uh, here's the segue for you. The largest residential property in Manhattan is a townhouse owned 
by Jeffrey Epstein, who um, has a thing for underage girls, but that's a whole other thing. <laughs> Jesus. Um, Back to uh, the porn edition. Okay. Back well, to the porn. But, but no, no, no. But allegedly, let me, allegedly the has a can... thing for the love of God libel. <laughs> um, imagine the porn you can who, get done what, in a 40,000 square foot basement. Allegedly. Who did do time in jail for... Um, oh, he did. That's right. Sorry. Yeah. I, okay. You know. No more allegedly. <laughs> um, the... And Jeffrey Epstein's brother, Mark Epstein, was the trustee of Cooper Union when it wound up taking on $100 million of debt to build this ridiculous white elephant building, which it could never pay for. And basically, in so doing, doomed Cooper Union to having to end 175 years of free tuition and have have to start charging tuition. And this is one of the great tragedies of higher education in the United States. And happily, Mark Epstein is finally out as one of the trustees of Cooper Union. He resigned last week along with four of his fellow trustees. So this is my number. My number is six is the number of resignations we got from the board of Cooper Union last week. I'm very happy about this. There was Mark Epstein, Ding Dong, which is dead. Um, there is four of his fellow trustees who are all on the side of Jamshed Barucha, the president who introduced tuition and who just completely failed to bring the community of um, teachers and alumni and students along with him on that. And most importantly, even more importantly than Mark Epstein, um, Jamshed Barucha himself resigned. So Cooper Union only has an interim president. It's a little bit like Twitter, I guess, in that respect. That was the most amazing segue I've ever heard. That was, <laughs> I Thank couldn't you. Believe it. <laughs> so, so yeah, my number is six. And with any luck, Cooper Union will be able to get through this. But I'm not holding my breath because it is a very, very, very nasty situation. And financially, they have all of this debt and they can't default on it because it's all secured against basically their endowment, which is the land under the Chrysler building. And if they lose that, then they lose, then they lose everything. So that's, that's a positive development in, a, in a, something which is still a very tragic story. Um, Ellie Mistel, thank you for coming on and being told about your moral failings <laughs> by Jordan Weisman. Reprobate. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. Um, we will thank you all listeners for, for, for listening to this edition of slate money and there will be more so do subscribe to us you can find us by searching for slate money in the itunes store um leave a review there write to us our email address is slate money at slate.com um, many thanks to stan alcorn for producing this week and to joel meyer the managing producer and to andy bowers the executive producer uh, slate money is part of the panoply network so check all of our shows out you can find them at iTunes.com slash Panoply. And we'll be back next week on Slate Money. I'm Matt Zoller-Seitz. Join me, Gazelle Amami, and Margaret Lyons as we talk about Hannibal, Halt and Catch Fire, and whether there is such a thing as too much violence. Subscribe to the Vulture TV podcast at what was that? <laughs> Subscribe to the Vulture TV. Po- <laughs> okay, Subscribe right. to the Vulture TV podcast at, <laughs> at your mother. Like canned peas, you know. Get it under control now. Oh, dead orphans. Subscribe to the Vulture TV podcast at iTunes.com/slash Panoply. Uh, we can use that. <laughs> for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply.